everybody. This is the Future Worlds Metaverse podcast. It is episode 17. And our guest today is Vicki Nauman, who has a long history in the music and tech side. Um, so let's introduce you right off. Hey, Vicki, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. It's great to talk to you. We, we've had a few conversations. I see Vicki on panels everywhere i think she's probably on more panels than anybody i've ever seen in the music and tech business both because i don't know if i want that i don't know if i want that is that a good bad <laughs> it's exposure and and if you've got a good message and if you've got you know good thoughts and you're contributing why not that, that's yeah. what i say and well I, don't... I do i do definitely feel like industry panels are a great way to try to help more people understand the complexity and these issues that that are you know we have so many blind spots in our industry especially around rights and new uses and new technologies and so it is a really good way to try to you know i always feel like even if there's just a couple people in the room who might walk away and have a new bit of information then i feel like it's worth it it's i always tell people if you want to know something go to a conference right it's the easiest way to immerse yourself quickly You'll be exposed to not only the professionals and experts in the field, but you also meet others in the light space that you might be in. But it's, you're right, to, to get this type of information from an IP attorney, unless you know somebody, you're going to pay for it or you're not going to know it. And I've always said on the tech side, just go to South by, go to CES, just sit there for two or three days and, and immerse yourself. And you'll come out of there with more knowledge and background than people that have been trying to get into the into the business or work something out over, you know, years even. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, music itself, music rights, you know, when you have master recording or, you know, sound recording, publishing, performing rights, neighboring rights, and then artists and how all of these deals work, that in and of itself is really, really challenging. And then if you think about all the different business models and the different use cases and the different rights that get implicated for different things. That's where people, it just completely breaks down because to most, to most technology companies, they think about, okay, if we're going to bake hardware, we have, we need a thousand parts and they need to come from four different suppliers in Asia. And then we need an assembly plant and we need to ship it. And we can zero out all those costs and we can create an effective supply chain. When you start talking to them about music rights and intellectual property, and it's like, well, that kind of depends. And this depends. And, you know, we might be able to do it this way, but, you know, the more typical approach is that way. It, you know, people just start to kind of shut down and they're like, I can't understand. If I can't understand this, I can't get approval internally to do it. And that's where, for me, that's where I like to come in because I hate good ideas with music to die on the vine. And so many of them do because people just decide that it's not worth it to try to, you know, zero risk and get the music that they want, but it's entirely possible. And music is such a closed ecosystem. Very few film is like that. TV is like the entertainment as a whole, I think is like that, but trying to make a connection with somebody or trying to get to a particular executive or have a relationship is very difficult unless you've got <laughs> existing relationships, friends, something that makes them a lot of money quickly or a track record. Exactly. And then it's, it's, it's just how do you navigate through and understand, like you said, there's so many tech companies I've spoken to that have zero clue about how the music business works at all. They think, oh, someone puts out a record and then magically it's everywhere and magically they make money you're skipping over all the hard parts. And I think that's something that's valuable information. It's hard to get that unless, again, you have those relationships or you spend the time in the trenches or the years behind, you know, I, I'm going to ask you your background because you must, you must have come out of music somewhere, right? Or what's, I know, you know, music writes very well, but where'd, where'd you come out of? Yeah. So I, um, you know, music has always been a huge, huge part of my life. And then I, before I started doing all the digital, I worked in radio. And so I worked in the ivory tower of the NPR radio network, Minnesota public radio, and then in Seattle at KUOW, which is NPR news, and then KCMU and KEXP, which are these it's amazing taste-making 
little boutique station that does um, that is kind of one of a handful of stations like KCRW, WF, um, WFMU. There's a handful of these where they're just truly pulling out gems and programming them. And so I built out all of their um, all of their on-demand streaming or their, their radio style streaming. But in the days before I got into digital, I was just doing like marketing and promotions. And, and it was so funny because, you know, at that time we just, you know, as a radio station, we got our licenses from ASCAP and BMI and it was really easy. We never reported anything. They would just come by the radio station once a month or so and say, what have you guys been playing? And we'd like, oh, okay. We just would write down some things on a piece of paper and give it to them. And they're like, great. Okay. See you next month. And, um, and then once I, you know, once I started understanding music rights, I thought, well, no wonder no one ever got paid for the radio use because we would just write on a piece of notebook paper, <laughs> 10 songs. And, um, and so, but I also had in the radio world, you know, that's kind of where I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like the power of music to connect to an audience and to be able to bring artists in the studio. And, you know, it, it was, um, it's something that I think in the digital transformation, a lot of the science and the, the ways that radio really worked um, were lost. And, um, you know, of being able to say, I have one chance, I'm, you know, I'm in radio, you have a signal. And so you then you have to say of the people in my market, you know, Seattle, we want to reach a particular demographic and program a particular kind of music and get ads and sponsors and events that all and announcers who all make sense for that demographic. And you know, most digital now is we're going to put everything out to everyone and let people find something they love. And so with radio, you know, we had to be really scientific and really strategic about what we played and how often we played it and, you know, the kinds of ads and boy, you know, if we got the wrong sponsor for something, you know, we heard immediately that our community disapproved and, um, and, you know, it was many things about radio, I think, are still really, really valuable, but um, but mo most of the practices have not really made their way into our digital economy now. And you're seeing a lot of consolidation, right? There's yeah. the, the programming, especially might rest with one or two people in New York, and they're basically programming the entire country, which there's a little at, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, but man, I think nowadays that's the norm and you're well, losing that local, like you said, that feedback, someone in that particular market might like a particular artist and that may not be a national artist. So how are they served? Exactly. And that's why these stations like KEXP, you know, KCRW, WFMU, um, WXPN, these are these local stations and they still program things there. But Intercom and Clear Channel and all of these big broadcasters in the 90s, they were, they, you know, the FCC Act changed in 1996, which allowed radio broadcasters, TV broadcasters, and newspapers to have multiple ownership in every market. So it completely changed the landscape and everything started to be programmed centrally because Clear Channel then had 800 stations. So they had five formats, five program directors, and everything was homogenized. And it, you know, it really dumbed down radio listening, but for the stations that still did local programming and handpicked programming, it was actually a boost to all of them because people didn't want this really generic radio. They wanted things that felt local and felt like they were part of it. Totally. And the ads, the same thing. Sometimes you'll hear ads from somewhere else and you're like, wow, is that, who's buying that? Right. And, and it, they're, they're can't, and I, as you travel the country, different regions have different ad styles and different, different programming styles, different disc jockeys or on-air talent styles. Right. I mean, some of it's still that 
and then some places it's completely laid back say pacific northwest and, and the public stations um so there's definitely like you said different tones and different different speeds for people but i'm i'm wondering how you went from that into more of the pure music or the right side and the tech side how did you get out of the radio realm and move forward well, it was it was in 1999, and I know I'm dating myself because now there are probably people listening who are like, I was born in 1999. This is like my grandmother telling me she had to walk to school in the snow. Um, but in 1999, when the first Napster happened, I kept reading about it, and then I thought, well, what is this? You know, so I downloaded the Napster client, and I looked at it and I saw this little gray interface and just millions and millions of people, every song imaginable. And my mind was blown. And I so it's like, oh my God, everything has just changed. All of entertainment is now forever going to be changed. It's going to be global. We're going to have access to everything. And it's hard to, it's hard for people who I mean, it's hard for me to even remember, but people who weren't around in those eras to remember that the only way that we could hear a song was if a radio station played it. And then the only way we could own it and listen to it was if a radio or a record store stocked it. And so this was such a revolution for me to think about no longer having to go and dig in the cutout bins and the import bins and try to find the cool new music that was coming out of Europe, um, that it was all going to be online. And so I thought, I want to figure this out. And I got hired as, um, you know, in the, in the product group at Real Networks in one of the first legally licensed, there were two legally licensed services. There was Press Play and MusicNet. And MusicNet was the one that I worked at that was a joint venture between Real Networks and three major labels at the time, which was EMI, Warner, and uh, BMG. And, um, and so that was kind of my first foray into this. And I didn't really know anything about rights, but I was learning. And then at, at in this joint venture, it was really my job was to try to get music and then, you know, figure out what the business model was for this new consumer service. And, um, and within a week, we, I learned that even though we had these three major labels as joint venture partners, that none of them would actually give us any of their music. And so I thought, okay, this is going to take a really, really long time to figure out this whole digital music thing. Because when I had first tried Napster, I thought, I thought, oh, this will take maybe five years because all we have to do is the technology is now there. All we have to do is legalize it and everyone's going to make so much more money. And it's going to be great. And it'll take a couple of years. <laughs> and, and here I am 23 years later, <laughs> still <laughs> trying to solve these problems. I remember when that happened and it was, it, uh, you're right, to explain it to someone who wasn't there, the impact that it had on the industry as a whole was like a light switch. And one day, all of a sudden, revenues were cut down by, I'll just say, 80% in some cases. Rosters were for sure cut down by 80% in many cases. And it was it was litigious. I, I, I ended up talking to Fanning man, this is many years ago, but I, I had a chance to interview him and I talked to him for four hours and I'd gone up there in San Francisco thinking this is like probably this guy that had some evil intent and was trying to be you know, the, the, the monster of music. And it was the furthest thing from the truth. He was a guy, he just loved music, loved world music. And so I just wanted to share with my friends and we, we developed a file sharing protocol and we were able to share music. And I think when Parker came in, Sean Parker, became his partner he brought a little more business sense and a little more dog eat dog yeah. uh, ethos into that formula but they did sit down with all the majors and they said yeah. they had a meeting and they said we want to partner with all of you we want to work with everybody work out how this payment works work out how the sourcing and licensing works we want to do it the right way and all of them i think it's with one exception it was either sony or warners just said we're going to sue you we don't care we're going to sue yeah. you. And the problem was everything was on a CD 
and CDs are digital masters. So right. you've already got the master recordings out in the, in, the, in the public. Anybody can record and share it and record it again. So they were basically, the horses had left the barn and they were, they were saying, now we're gonna see you even though the horses are all out there. So it's, but it was that irreverence. And I guess Napster's back, right? I saw um, yeah. Jason or John's back running it now. They're, they're rebranding re, re it or redoing it. Yeah, it's, been, it's bounced around because once, you know, I mean, they did get sued into oblivion and, you know, as, you know, Kazaa and LimeWire, there were Morpheus, there were lots and lots of companies that popped up with file sharing networks, you know, similar to Napster. And so it was truly like from 2000 to probably 2008, it was just whack-a-mole where they were trying to stop all of these illegal services, suing them, doing whatever we could. But Napster sold its brand um, to a company and it bounced around. It was it was owned by multiple, multiple different parties. And then Best Buy owned it at one point, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then it kind of merged, you know, in into a um, you know, into Rhapsody, which was one of the earliest music companies, online music companies. And um, I still am like a rooter for, you know, for them to stick it out. And so they changed, but then they changed, they had Napster in Europe and they had Rhapsody here, and then they changed their brand to be Napster. And, um, and so it'll be interesting to see what John does with it. And, you know, and, um, but, but I think in those early days, to your point about the conversations with labels was that, you know, I was definitely one of these people and you probably were of like, wow, this is the future. This is going to be great. We are going to be able to make music available online. We can, you know, have people subscribe to it. But people who were running record labels, the only thing they really knew was distribution, was printing music onto CDs, selling them for $20 and it cost about $2. So they had this massively profitable business controlling radio promo and you know working in partnership with record stores completely controlling the entire ecosystem why would they want to get rid of that you know they didn't they wanted to slow down everything with digital as you know and just get as much money out of their physical distribution for as long as possible and you know that really went on for you know five to eight years. And we did have things like iTunes store in 2003, where we had a legal download market and devices like iPods to be able to store them. Um, but. Well, they let jobs come in and say, every song is 99 cents, right? That was to me, I, I thought, what just happened? And, and I think because of that early Napster 2000 thing that directly led into them saying, Tech knows what they're doing. They've got this distribution network. Apple seems safe. At least we can negotiate with them and, and, and license with them. They're ubiquitous. Their devices are everywhere. So yeah, 99 cents. That's what a single is. And, and that was that was weird. And yeah. and the out it was kind of the end of the album, right? Yes, it, exactly. Before that, a CD, like you said, was 18 or $20. And there was 12, 15 songs on it. After that, it was I like that song, I like that song, I like that song. I've spent eight dollars and I have eight songs. Exactly. Right? exactly. And then you get into the streaming model, whereas I spent eight dollars and I have a hundred million songs. I know. I know. It's <laughs> such it's such a um you know, you know, it's like this is completely intangible. How do you put value on music? Because if we think about what the value is, the monetary value that's assigned to the, all these different formats. You know, for many, again, for all the people who were not around in the olden days, you know, people, we had format changes. So you would buy, maybe you have a favorite album, David Bowie, you know, like you love changes. And so, or, you know, Ziggy Stardust. And so you bought that album on vinyl and then, oh, now there's new, there's, there's eight tracks. So it's like, oh, I'm going to get that. I'm about, I bought it on eight track. And then, oh, look, there's cassettes. Oh, I'm going to buy it in cassette. And then CDs come around. You're like, this is it. It's the perfect audio fidelity. It'll never, you know, we'll never tear. We'll never have a problem. Never skip. 
buy that. So you've bought the, your favorite album four times and then digital comes around and it's disrupted and you no longer have to buy the album. You can buy the song because maybe, you know, a lot of the music that was being released, there were one or two great songs and there were 10 songs that you didn't really like, but you had no choice. You had to buy the whole album. And so digital completely broke apart the album. And then iTunes at 99 cents created a great legal market, but it was exactly as you say, I no longer have to buy 10 albums to get the, 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 the 10 songs I want. I can just spend $10 instead of a hundred dollars um, or $200 in the CD era and forever changed forever changed the course of of how we consume music and, and generations know, believe that music I, I, as in my opinion they think it's free because of the napster era where people were literally saying here's my hard drive here's four thousand songs do whatever you want with them exactly. and then i've heard you know younger kids say hey it's in the radio so it's on radio it must be free and I always say music's the upside down value prop of entertainment, right? You buy a book, it can be $25 for a hardcover book. Right. You don't even think about it. You might read it twice. A movie is $20 to go see a movie. Maybe you go see the movie once, maybe twice. A song, your favorite song, you might, uh, my favorite song, I'm sure I've listened to at least 10,000 times. <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating, right? Over the years, thousands of times, it costs me, I could get it for free. And if I subscribe to a Spotify or a Deezer or an Amazon, I'm paying five, eight, $10 a month for as many pieces of music as I want 24 seven, as much as I can listen to. Yeah. And, and you think, wow, a book might have one or two authors, maybe publisher, you know, a movie has a lot of moving pieces, obviously a TV show the same, but a record has generally a team of, of, of artists, yeah. production people, a label, just distributors, publishers. How do they make that work? When you're talking about 0. 0.0005 cents per stream versus $25 for a hardback book, to get to $25 for 0. 0.0005 is hundreds of millions of streams. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And probably about five years ago, it was before the pandemic, but I thought I decided, why don't I, why don't I have a turntable? And so I, I set up, got a turntable and set something up. And then I had, I saved one tiny box of records from long, long, long time ago. I gave everything else away, which I'm still mourning. I really wish I hadn't done that, but I did. And, um, but then I went to Amoeba and you know, and we're in this era of like, am I going to hit the subscribe button for $10 a month for all the music that has ever been created that feels like such a huge commitment? And then I went to Amoeba because I thought, oh, I need some records. So I went to Amoeba and within an hour, I spent over $200 on a handful of records that I was so excited about. I thought nothing of spending $200 in an hour, but I contemplated, should I really subscribe? Do I, you know, do I really want to do that? And so, you know, and, and then when you look at the amount of money that people spend on concert tickets, you know, extraordinary amounts of, of money to go see an artist that you love. But I just don't think that the business models, I think streaming works to it served an incredible purpose, which was to migrate people from piracy to better experience where the music, you know, the, the bad things about the P2P systems were you often downloaded viruses to your computer. Some of the songs sounded terrible and other sound songs sounded great. Some were not the right song, you know, the data was wrong. So there were many things that you inconsistent there were inconsistent that you got in exchange for not paying for it and so streaming gave people this better quality experience migrated now we have i think 600 million people globally who are subscribing remarkable i remember a few years ago some of the labels were saying if we can just reach 100 million 
we globally, we will have a sustainable business again. And now we're at 600 million. But the problem with streaming is it's kind of created this music in, is in the background. And it is, there's music running throughout our lives, but we don't necessarily always even know what's playing. And, um, and we also, you know, like the, the people who were probably like you and me in the old days who would buy, you know, five albums or five CDs a month and spend $200 a month. When we moved everybody to this 999 model, it was great for people who bought a few CDs a year and were able to get access. But for all of us who used to spend thousands of dollars a year on recorded music, we we no longer had any reason to spend that money on music. And so we lost that very top of the pyramid. And um, and you know, and then I think conversely, with the streaming models, the other problem with them is, you know, the 0. 0.00005 cents or 0.00001 for comp composers is that you can make a lot of money as an artist in streaming if your music is on thousands of playlists and you get hundreds of millions of streams. But if you're an artist who maybe has, um, you know, dedicated fans around the world, but maybe your music doesn't get on a lot of playlists or people just don't listen to it on repeat over and over and over, these are volume-based business models. So you will never, ever make those little fractions of a penny add up to anything meaningful. So it doesn't work for everybody. And I think that's kind of where we are right now. This is a really interesting segue. Um, I would say yes. I used to sit in a in my room with the lights off and my headphones on and listen to records. And you focused on the music. It wasn't in the background. It wasn't Definitely. trivial. It wasn't, ah, you know, I'm just flipping through channels. You were listening intently. You were reading liner notes. You were learning about who the artists were. And then you do it again. And you do it again. And their records, I'm sure you, know, you can relate. I can name records where I, I know every single lyric sequence. And, and when you hear the song, you go, oh, this, the next song on the album is, and then it's not because it's a playlist. Exactly. But I think the segue here is into NFTs because I see that as one method where you can come back and now perhaps sell a song to somebody, almost like a download. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's other value that transfers with that. Yeah. But now the artist can actually do that. You, you could do have a label do that as well and, and any other distributor, but it could be the artist going directly to the fans. So if they have a hundred or a thousand fans that love them, now they can say, I'm going to sell each NFT for $5, pick a number. And those thousand fans buy it. And now the artist has $5,000. You don't have to worry about millions and hundreds of millions of streams to get $5,000. They just sold to a thousand fans at $5 each. And by the way, they're making more because they're writing more and more songs. So how do you see that? You, what do you think about that model? Yeah, I'm super excited about all of the possibilities that were that kind of where we're in the midst of going from these volume-based streaming, whether it's streaming services or UGC, TikTok, you know, all of it is very much about volume. And going to this Web3 world of NFTs, maybe immersive experiences, I think NFTs, a lot of them are going to evolve into more interactive fan clubs. And these are so exciting to me because it, it's an opportunity to reintroduce things like scarcity, like maybe your fan club should only have hundred people and that there's, you know, there's value because it's a limited group, or maybe you're selling people some sort of limited edition music, or maybe you're letting a handful of your fans co-create music with you and collaborate with you. And these are the kinds of things that I think when we, we you know, when we talk about that top of the pyramid, the people who love, love, love music and will spend exponentially more than $9.99 a month, 
that this reintroduces ways for those kinds of people to spend more money and to for artists to be able to kind of you know have a subset of their fans that they engage with more closely and that they can work in you know and and find ways to monetize their music differently in a way that fans are 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 you know hungry for more access and more ways to engage with artists it's i think it's just so so exciting and we have a lot of work to do to get web3 and nfts and wallets and all of these things to be mainstream but i think over the next 3 to 5 years we, it, it will happen i agree and i think it's happening a little faster I, I i do think the younger generations understand wallets a lot better than the older generations and yes. gas fees i just bought something the other day and the gas was actually more than the than the actual nft but when yeah. are they going to fix that, right? It's I like know. saying that the, the postage stamp was 50 cents and I sent a check for 10 cents. So why does that make sense? But it, it was the idea that you could use it, you could have a deliverable, a value deliverable, right? So whether that's visual, audio, like you said, access, piece of physical merchandise, whatever it might be, the artist can pick that. But the owner of the NFT also has the opportunity to put it on a marketplace exactly. and sell it. So say you were a, I don't know, big Bob Dylan fan and you're 85 years old, you're like, you know, I've had my run with Bob Dylan. I'm just going to, instead of, I don't have any relatives to bequeath this to, so I'm just going to put it on a marketplace. And whatever value came with that NFT now will be transferred to someone else. The original artist and whoever else is on that rights chain will benefit from that sale. And it's a way to, it's almost like your, your vinyl collection, right? If you had a vinyl album and you're like, you know, I've got a new, I'm not going to have a turntable anymore. I have a smaller space. I can't play as loud, whatever. I want to sell it. But but a place where you can see it transfer value and maybe participate in that value chain going forward. And also, like you said, not just the album and the vinyl and the liner notes, but it could be a ticket to a show. It could be an, a direct conversation with the artist. There's, there's unlimited numbers of ways you can engage with that and i think there'll be different tiers right maybe there will be a free tier where hey here's just the music well here's the music plus some art here's the music plus art plus a video here's music plus art plus video plus a ticket and then so on and so forth and and those price points will be commensurate and it's just like buying a car you can have the base level car which is you know 50 grand or you can add leather seats which is five you know you just build that the way that you want to customize it and I think people that are big fans will understand the value of each one of those levels. And I think that value will go up. And as artists, sad to say, as some of them pass away, the value even goes higher, right? Because you know, you'll never see that artist live again. But this particular NFT contains maybe a limited edition video, a conversation you had with them off, you know, offline that was direct. I, there, there, again, I don't know what could be contained there, but the value that could be transferred with them could go generationally. So I think I think it's a great opportunity. I do too. And I think, you know, I think the world that we're in right now with social media and UGC and streaming companies, all of that is going to continue to coexist as this new economy evolves. And so I think that they're really different, they're really very different purposes. And I don't see like, oh, you know, I spend time on an NFT or a fan club or some game, you know, gamified way of engaging with music over here. It's not necessarily going to be like, oh, I no longer want to subscribe to Spotify. I think that these things are really, they're really compatible, but they're like these two totally different ecosystems and two totally different ways of engaging with music. And I think that the, um, you know, if we fast forward to, you know, 10 years, maybe when more web three things of experiences and all of these different kinds of, you know, ways that we can engage with music, when those become more mainstream, it will be a crunch on our time of how much time then do we have to spend listening to music versus doing, you know, online games and all these other things. But, um, but I think that, it, you know, both of these economies are just going to continue to evolve side by side. And 
And we're, you know, and I think the best example of how that it sort of already works is what we're seeing with TikTok and streaming services and how, you know, people discover like, you know, an older song, you know, Fleetwood Mac, whatever, they <laughs> discover it there. And then they go to Spotify and they make a playlist and they create and and it is really interesting because this younger generation, many people coming, you know, from TikTok into streaming platforms, they are much less likely to listen to pre-programmed playlists and much more likely to make their own. So, you know, there's already these little bits of user behavior of how these cross platforms are kind of pollinating. And I think with Web3, it's going to be like that as well, because you discover someone, maybe you're listening to something in your streaming service, you, you know, you see that artist in concert, and then you see that there's an opportunity for you to be a part of a community or be part of a fan club and get access to maybe a rare good or some limited edition and some way to engage with other fans of that artist. These things are all really, really compatible. and. Um, and I think that um, I think that the experience, the user experience, is pretty clunky right now with most Web three. You know, like buy some crypto, create a wallet, get a MetaMask account, transfer your crypto into the MetaMask account, link the MetaMask account to an oh. NFT platform. You know, then unlink it because of security, and you know, and like that is not a mainstream experience. But it will get there. You know, we will get there. Same with the live space. I was just thinking about that because a lot of these concerts, especially in Roblox, it's still, I won't say 8-bit, but it's still, you're, you're a blockhead going yes. through space or you're watching you know, a 2D representation. I, I do think on the gaming platforms, because they have a lot of eyeballs and a lot of financial resources and, and the computing power, you'll see more photorealistic. And there's no reason if they can build a Madden, which looks like you're in a real football game. Sometimes I'll look at the screen. Is that a game or is that TV? Because it's so close. But I'm going to exactly. bet that the live concert experience is going to become much more immersive and, and artists are going to be able to interact. And you're going to have your choice of a point of view on stage, whether you want to be sitting behind the guitar player or off to the side or in the drummer's spot, wherever you want to be and experience music in a whole different way. So I think, I think there's a lot of opportunity on that side. What, what do you think there? I do too. I do too. And I think, you know, the, during the pandemic, you know, we had, we had the ability to do live streams before the pandemic, but then the pandemic, you know, everything shut down and nobody could tour. We all lost this huge part of our lives of going and gathering at a club and, um, and live streaming became this kind of lifeblood, but there were problems with it. You know, there were problems with monetization. There were also, I think a lot of people really want, I think for these things to work, they probably do need to be time shifted and being able to be recorded and made available on demand. And none of that is easy. It goes back to music rights. Um, so a lot of the companies just were doing, you know, one-time live streams and it was something that I think, you know, was a bridge to the end of the pandemic, but then we opened back up and there was so much pent up demand from both fans and artists to tour that live stream kind of, kind of got pushed into the background, but we're getting now back into more normal. I mean, like last year was insane, you know, like in one month I went to see you know, New Order and The Who and the Black Keys and Phoenix and Roxy Music. And it's like, it's not typical. Everybody was out. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was out. And that's getting back to more normal. And so I do feel like the combination of live streaming, fan communities in Web3, and, you know, kind of these experiential technologies that are going to make us feel much more like we're in the room, as opposed to just sitting in our living room with our cats, you know, and watching on our laptops. I think there's going to be different levels of, of social and interaction. And, um, and I think people will pay for it. And, um, but I think that, again, 
these, a lot of these technologies, they have to evolve a little bit further. And, um, and, you know, artists, the other thing that's so fascinating, I was, I was just in the Netherlands last week and Mark Mulligan did a great talk from Midia. He did a really, really great talk about um, communities and, and tribes and cultures that are developing all over the world and how on-demand streaming and having access to everything has it, even though in some levels it's very homogenized, in others, it, there are people, there are groups that are just naturally starting to set up online and in real life of fans. And so there's this, there's this kind of, you know, global need for people to come together around artists. And that's where I think this combination of live streams, metaverse experiences and communities can really, really be transformative for our business. It can definitely work on different levels. And I, I, I think you're right. A lot of people are, you know, if you grew up, let's just say in the US, you, you don't think anybody else has a different experience, but there are most of the world probably hasn't had access to A-level talent in a live situation right. because we're going to tour. And how many times are you going to tour India? Right? Right. It's so right. hard to get there and, and very expensive and prohibitive. So most acts never go there. Yeah. So how does someone in India that might be a fan of, Adele or Drake ever see that right. performance and, and maybe the way is through a, a web three or a metaverse experience it's very close to being there it's not the same mm -hmm. thing obviously but it's close enough for someone who has no access other than watching it on tv right now so I think there's mm -hmm. going to be a lot more rich experiences I guess is the way to put it and I think that there'll be different tiers I, I can see that there'll be pricing if you go to some of the early shows on i think the travis scott show um you can get it for a dollar five dollars right ticket prices were very reasonable compared to hundreds or thousands of dollars that you're paying to see someone live so you're going to get a broader audience you're going to have markets that maybe never have heard of you or never had a chance again to see you participate and you're going to be able to do a show from your house and make a million dollars versus having to be on the road with you know, 35 crew members and buses and trucks and all for you, you would net less money doing that and work harder than taking the time to be more personable and having a, an intimate relationship with a far deeper fan base. Yeah. And, and when you think about, when you think about how music has, has, you know, in the old days, it was very local. It was local to, you know, bands in local cities, maybe they would tour a region or a country, you know, and an artist would break in a country because of, radio and you know in record stores now it's truly global and even if an artist goes on a 50 city tour which is a massive massive undertaking they're still going to miss the vast majority of their fans because their fans live in every corner of the world and um you know and can't necessarily if you're playing in london on you know, Tuesday night and you're, you're in Scotland, you're pretty close, but you probably can't get to, you probably can't get to London on Tuesday and then get back to work on Wednesday morning. Um, you know, there's just many, many reasons why people are never going to be able to be in the room, but I think we're going to be, I think as the tech gets better, you know, that feeling that, you know, I don't think we'll ever be able to be replicated digitally where, you're in the room, you're with other people, the anticipation of a band coming on stage. It's so fun. You know, you get goosebumps. Um, we might not be able to do that, but I think we'll be able to be really close and there will be other benefits. Like, as you say, you know, I want to look, I want to watch the drummer or, you know, who's that, you know, why, what's that guy doing in the corner playing the theremin? I want to watch that. Um, you know, maybe be able to have a chance to talk with the band or have the band interact with the camera in a different way, like where they are speaking to the online audience. Um, I think we've just we've just barely, barely scratched the surface of that during the pandemic. 100%. And I'm thinking of some of the videos where you see an artist pull someone out of the crowd and put them on stage and let them sing or dance. That was rare. I mean, it's still yeah. rare. And it's special. And you go, oh, I wish I was that person. I wonder what they're thinking. This is now a medium where you can have that happen a lot more often and like you said it, it's 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 accessible to people that if it's physically impossible to get there even financially impossible right how many people can afford a 200 concert ticket so you're opening up that access to so many more people 
Um, yeah, I just, it's, there's also a line where the gamification comes in and I, I've seen that kind of pushing, um, especially from some of the platforms like Fortnite and, and Roblox where the mindset of gamers is always, you know, I, there's a leaderboard, I need to compete, I need to have this, I need to buy all this stuff. And then on, on the music side, a lot of artists I know and have worked with are like, just, just listen to my guitar, right? I don't, you don't need to, I don't need lights, I don't need like a moving stage, I don't need any of the accoutrements that come with a show. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, maybe Eddie Vedder looking at his shoes, but it's, <laughs> it's, there is going to be some type of culture clash or some type of new culture where it's going to be more accepted to have a gamified part of your performance where yeah. artists, and I, I, you know, I liken that to the brands on buildings. I used to, my artists used to go, oh, you know, I'm not going to have a banner. I'm not going to take it out. I'm like, you're playing Staples Center. On the ticket above your name, even it says Staples Center. Right. That's a brand. You've, you've, I'm not saying you're endorsing them, but to most fans, you're playing the Staples Center means that, you know, that Staples name is in their head and someone's paid for that, obviously. And I think now that's become much more accepted and, and being part of a brand or having a brand with you in a, in, a, in a medium is not looked down upon so much, but there was a time when it was. I I'm know. It's so funny, like to think back to, especially like the nineties, you know, where it was, and this even went into the two thousands a little bit where it's like, oh man, I'm not going to sell out and license my song to a Pepsi commercial that's beneath me, you know, fast forward 10 years. Hey, I'd love to license my song to a Pepsi commercial. Like these, you know, these, these concepts of kind of, you know, music is counterculture and art and separate from commerce. It's always been a part. It's always been about money, you know, changing hands and extraordinary amounts of money, especially for successful artists. But, you know, when, when in that, especially in that transition from these really, really lucrative years of selling CDs to this digital economy, all of a sudden, you know, like, yeah, associating with the brand, that's not such, a, it's not such a bad idea after all. I've always said, why not, why, why don't the brands have their own labels, right? If you're Ford, and some segment of your artists drive Ford trucks or Ford vehicles, that's congruent. That's not like yeah. saying I'm a alcohol that no one drinks or some type of clothing that nobody wears. We drive a Ford truck. So why wouldn't Ford be a logical brand partner? And nowadays you can buy every label service. So you don't need to be signed to Warner Brothers. Exactly. Ford can provide a budget that will get you marketing, radio, promotion, publicity, distribution, what have you, it's not the worst, it's not the worst case scenario. And, and as you know, many of these labels, I think all the major labels are all offshore owned, right? Vivendi's French, Sony's Japanese, Warner Brothers, are they owned? I, I can't remember who owns Warner Brothers, but it's multinational brands. Yeah. So it, it's, it's like you said, to get to that level, you require resources and people are listening to you through an iPhone or a Samsung phone. There's a device, there's, a, there's necessary physical devices and relationships you have to have with brands in order to get that art content anyway. So why not take advantage of that and, and slingshot yourself through you know, years of slogging away because you don't wanna sell out. I had an artist that- I know. Well, I'm was, like, okay, go is a great example because you know, they, they do, they make these iconic videos, you know, the rubrics or the, you know, Rube Goldberg machine type of things. Yep. And, um, and they, you know, they had a partnership with Samsung. And so Samsung wanted to put their products in this music video, you know, and okay goes like, you know, we, <laughs> we really do not want to put your products, you know, all these devices in the background of our music video. That's not who we are. So they came up with a solution and they said, we will allow, we will shoot all of our videos for this on Samsung. You know, we'll use Samsung equipment. And then, uh, then they did um, a couple of different cuts that Samsung was approved to use that did have a device and did have, 
you know, and like, and put a little, you know, bumper at the end of their videos that this was made possible by Samsung and shot on Samsung equipment. And I thought that was such a great example of how the band had, had to create their own little firewall around how far they will go. And most brands are pretty malleable. They're going to ask for everything. They will ask you to, you know, have your lead singer dress up like a, like a mobile phone if, if you let them, but it's up to the teams and managers like you and teams who can come in and say, well, we won't do that, but we will do this. And, um, you know, and find, find the right mix that doesn't, doesn't impede the integrity of the, of the music. hundred percent. I think that's going to be an area that's really interesting, especially with metaverse and web three, where, like I said, there's, there's going to be gamification. I, I don't see how there's, how yeah. there can't be, if you can, if you need to monetize to get to that level of say resolution, you know, the, the, that level of engagement from an audience there's got to be some type of level of gamification because these kids all expect that. Like, like if there's nothing else happening in there, I can't go buy a skin or I can't be on a co competition with somebody that I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. Exactly. Right? And, exactly. And to serve those fans. And, and I, you know, again, younger generational artists are far more aligned with that than someone that's 10 or 20 years older than them. So I think that gap is narrowing. Um, I know. And when I, and when I first was wrapping my head around a couple of years ago around, you know, virtual merch in Roblox as being the main way to monetize any kind of music experiences in there, you know, and I thought, really, you know, people are going to buy, really going to buy virtual t-shirts. And then I created an account. I started exploring in there and I'm like, okay, I got it. <laughs> I got it. You know, like that is that is a an, another expression of fandom and it is, you know, like rarities, you know, maybe there's a limited edition of certain types of merch, maybe those are higher priced. We did, I did this project with Warner Music and David Guetta a year ago in Roblox and we sold, there were t-shirts, but we also sold um, virtual glow sticks for the neck <laughs> and for your wrists. So, and, you know, so people bought those and, you know, as part of David's, you know, to wear at David's set and it was, um, you know, it's really fun and it is, you know, like a lot of bands, I think there's kind of this historical music is cool and gaming is nerd and culture and those lines are completely crossed now. And so I think that, you know, kind of understanding how gaming companies can offer broad free distribution of games and make billions of dollars out of in-game engagement-based purchases, there are lessons the music industry can learn from that. Definitely. And I think, again, the artist can be involved as a principal. Yeah. Instead of having to work through a, la a layer after layer of labels and third parties, if an artist really wants to, they can make a deal direct. I was talking with a major artist a few months ago and they were out of their deal. And they said, Steve, where do you think we should sign? I said, sign to Apple. And they looked at me like I'd hit them in the face. Like, what are you talking about? I said, well, if you're at that level and you own all your stuff, right. Apple's the most financially successful company in the world, I think by a factor of many, and they have the hardware, they have the distribution system in place. And if they want to push a button, they'll accelerate your career and, and, and fan access to a point where you couldn't do it anywhere else. And they yeah. go, well, wouldn't that affect our relationship with Spotify? <laughs> I said, Spotify, if you're with Apple, Spotify is, you know, they're, they're, it was hard for them to understand that because they came out of the major label system. They had a lot of success with them, obviously, and would always rely upon a record label to do all of that stuff for them. And, and I said, again, it's just cash and you could hire a team. Your managers could hire a team and build an entire ecosystem that you control. It's accountable to you. doesn't have other priorities like most labels do. Um, but they were, it was, it was, it was like, they'd never heard that before, but I think you're going to see more and more of that back to the branding of the brand relationships and associations we're a brand that makes strategic sense and is aligned with your interests. That's 
why wouldn't you do that kind of a deal? Exactly. And, you know, you, and right now it's relatively easy if you, you know, especially if you have a name recognition, so you're exiting your major label deal and you're like, I'm going to leave all those recordings behind, but I'm going to make my new work and I'm going to create, design my own creativity, my creative destiny. And, you know, you can sign up with any number of distributors own your own rights you can have your publishing administered by someone like cobalt or bmg or song trust and you can that's your plumbing you know get your music out to everywhere and then you can start layering on top who are your brand partners what do you want to do with your fans you know how are you going to market this what are you going to do with your tour and these are things that can probably be paralyzing to acts who have always just put that in a label's hands. But that's why, you know, I think there is kind of a myth that there's a, the um, do-it-yourself artists. Most, most artists of any size and merit have a team. And so then you need, if you want to do Web3, get somebody on your team who understands that, get someone who understands touring and merch and, you know, monetization, just like you would in any other small entrepreneurial business and, um, you know, and get your rights clean and clear for everything that you do, but you can layer on as much, as much or as little as you want. And, um, and I think it's a, I think, especially for these bigger acts that, that, you know, finally get their rights back or they get, they get the independence that they wanted. Um, there's, it's like you have, you can basically do anything you want, and um, and that's a really exciting, but probably kind of terrifying, <laughs> kind of a terrifying white canvas for for many. It can be a leap of faith, but like you said, if you build the right team and you're you're confident that you've got people around you that know what they're doing, there's there's going to be missteps no doubt, but better to move forward with missteps than to paralyze yourself in the past. And I think there's a lot of artists that, that I've, I've spoken to them. I've spoken to their managers and, and they want someone else to do it first. And I keep saying someone else will do it first because it sounds like you're going to sit there and watch and you'll get benefit from it. Obviously there is a risk involved, but if you own your stuff and you trust yourself and your fans are going to trust you and you're with them on this journey. And that's, I think, one of the other precepts of Web3 and Metaverse is your community is much closer to you, right? You can you can put up a poll and say, guys, what do you think we should do, right? Would you like us to, to, to partner with these brands? Which ones make sense for you guys, right? Would you pay X for a digital skin? I mean, you can communicate these choices and have feedback instantly in a way that you could never do before. So bring them along for the journey let everybody make a misstep if, if that's how that works. I mean, you're seeing Musk do this with Twitter. Hey guys, should I be CEO? No. Okay. <laughs> right. Should I, should I charge? Why you ask? No. <laughs> he was going to charge $25 for the blue check mark. And I, some company came back and said $8 and he goes, Are, okay, $8. I mean, this is immediate feedback and course correction in the 2020s, right? Where you can have that relationship open that transparency up a little bit and and build something with your fan base instead of against them or over the wall from them. Right. Well, and I think like to your point about, you know, everybody has kind of like, do you want to be first? Do you want to watch? Do you want to kind of, you know, gauge what's happening? That's There's a ton of that right now with Web3, with NFTs, with metaverse, different things where there's a lot of, you know, there are some you know, artists who have been very bold, you know, Travis Scott, David Guetta, you know, on and on and on. Marshmallow was kind of the one who broke this whole concept open. Um, But there are a lot of, there are a lot of people sitting on the sidelines right now because they've seen some missteps, you know, some things that people have not done right, or that fans have been upset because of something looked like too much like a cash grab or the environmental aspects of, blockchain and, you know, crypto and things that have not yet been 
you know, made more efficient. Um, and so there's a lot of people that are on the sidelines and that's okay. You know, it's okay to watch and pay attention, but I think it's also, it, there's, there's a lot of value to really engaging and understanding, you know, what the dynamics are, who the players are, and maybe experimenting and trying some things and realizing might not be perfect, but then you have firsthand knowledge of what works and what doesn't work. And I think that's really, really valuable right now. Now we've seen that guys like Matt Shadows and Avenged Sevenfold, where he's just out there building his community, doing his thing, and doesn't not beholden to anyone. He's gonna make missteps. He puts his you know toe in over here, puts his toe in over there. Oh, this works, this doesn't work. But you can it's transparent. I, I follow him, I, I watch how the community reacts, and he watches how the community reacts and adjusts based on what behaviors and reactions there are yeah. to move in a way that, that makes more sense, but he's moving, right? That's the right. point is he's moving and a lot of other people are just sitting there going, I'm gonna wait till somebody else figures it out, which again, it's valid. It's just not as exciting. I think you're gonna, you're gonna lose the, the potential of being a pioneer and the education that comes with that. And you're not gonna be in that place first. There's something about being an OG or the first mover in space that gives you credence later on um, and probably a higher potential for value um, because you can develop those systems and then the long tail starts following you. But um, Vicki, I don't want to keep you too long. I appreciate you coming on today. This is a great discussion. We can go on for probably another three hours. Um, thank you for, for, for joining us. And uh, I want to definitely keep in touch and I look forward to seeing you very soon. Sounds really great. Thanks for having me. Anytime, fun. anytime. <laughs> we'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks, Vicki. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.